Hi, WorkWell listeners. I'm really excited to share that my book, Work Better Together, is officially out. Conversations with WorkWell guests and feedback from listeners like you inspired this book. It's all about how to create a more human-centered workplace. And as we return to the office for many of us, this book can help you move forward into post-pandemic life with strategies and tools to strengthen your relationships and focus on your well-being. It's available now from your favorite book retailer. We've all had the experience of dealing with a challenging colleague. It's not only unpleasant, but it can also impact our well-being, performance, and our organizational culture. Feeling respected and valued at work is foundational to creating a psychologically safe workplace where we can all thrive. So what can we do as individuals and leaders to create a culture of kindness, respect, and community at work? This is the WorkWell podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, Chief Wellbeing Officer for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be here with you today to talk about all things well-being. I'm here with Christine Porath. She's a professor at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business. She's also the author of Mastering Civility, a manifesto for the workplace, as well as Mastering Community, the surprising ways coming together moves us from surviving to thriving. Her work has been featured worldwide in over 1,500 television, radio, and print outlets. Christine, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So tell us about yourself. Um, I know your work focuses on civility, community in the workplace. How did you become passionate about these topics? Well, I think it really stemmed from my work experience uh, and what I didn't see early on. <laughs> so like you, I uh, played college soccer and I played college basketball and sports was a, an important part of my life. And I always had community built into that aspect. Uh, and I think I just assumed that it would be part of the workplace as well mm. and that people showed up and treat treated one another, you know, really well. And I was really an eye-opening experience when I took my first job out of college. Uh, I was working for the largest sports management and marketing firm, and it was just a subsidiary of theirs that was, uh, you know, like a toxic bubble, basically. And I just saw what it, the effects it had on people, um, how negatively it affected them within the workplace, but also how oftentimes they took it home with them as mm. well. And I just felt like we could and should do better, especially given how much time and energy we spend in, in our work lives. And so it just set me on a path to try to document and show as objectively as possible, like what are the costs of negative workplace behaviors, especially things like disrespect? And then what is the potential for creating workplaces and environments where people can really thrive? So can you kind of take us through like how you define, you know, community, civic, like what does that look like in the workplace? Because I think a lot of people, you know, do struggle with like, okay, I, I played sports or I was a member of this club or that club or, you know, there's, you know, they, they feel like there should be a difference in what community at work looks like versus kind of what community perhaps outside of our work lives look like. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of having concern for one another and caring about each other, 
Um, ideally, you have mutual goals and things like that, too. Um, but I think for me, it's not like you have to be a family, but it helps if you can think of yourselves as a team, like um, supporting each other, I think, through the ups and downs is one practical way I think about it. Uh, and and that's an important piece of like, also, I, I guess, going with the idea of psychological safety and mm-hmm. do I feel like I can be myself? Do I feel like I belong? Um, am I comfortable contributing my ideas? Uh, do I feel safe to speak up about potential issues or um, those kind of things resonate for me? Um, but you want to feel good about the time that you spend with others. Uh, I think especially nowadays that people you know, spend a lot of their lives in or around the workplace. Yeah. So I guess in your earlier book, right, you talk a lot about civility and kind of mastering civility. And I'll be honest, that's not really a word that um, I feel like is commonplace or used um, in the vernacular in, in the workplace. So can you talk about, you know, what you what you mean by that and like why civility, but also what does incivility look like in the workplace? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the best synonym for it is respect. And, you know, maybe we should have gone with that. Um, I was, <laughs> I, I, yeah. Um, I was working with a wonderful mentor, Christine Pearson, and she was doing some work on incivility, which um, you mentioned. And so, in that case, it was defined as disrespect, rudeness, insensitive behavior towards others. And so, you know, it encompasses a lot of different behaviors, like, you know, feeling belittled, feeling degraded, um, not feeling a part of the team, not getting credit, Uh, you know, it spans a wide variety. But I think um, having done some of the work on that and, and noticing what the costs were, then trying to figure out, okay, how can we move the needle to beyond neutral? And so, you know, just based on the word incivility, the the positive was civility. And it's certainly been used a lot in philosophy and, um, a, a, you know, historically it has a, a real place out there. But you're right. Like, I don't think it's something that's commonly discussed in workplaces. Uh, I, I've been told that respect is translates nicely across cultures. So for global firms like Deloitte, you know, that's one that that typically holds and that people understand. And you tend to see it in a lot of different organizations, values and, you know, mission statements and things like that. So I think, yeah, using respect is, you know, a great synonym for what we mean by it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I mean, and perhaps I'm a a rose colored glasses kind of girl, but like, I don't, I mean, I don't think that people intentionally try to be disrespectful in the workplace. So what causes, you know, incivility or disrespect? Like, why is it so hard to be, why is it so hard for some people? Because I don't think it's hard for everybody. (laughs) But but why is, you know, what is challenging about being civil at work? Is it, you know, is it, is it workload? Is it pressure? Is it stress? Is it a combination of things? I think you're right. It's a combination of things. Uh, We have asked people, you know, why is it that you're, rude and we all are from time to time right we are. so we're human <laughs> yeah we you know we were curious about that and yeah. the number one reason by far is stress and feeling mm-hmm. overwhelmed 
And so, you know, most of us can relate to that. Um, the second reason, so almost 50% of people rated that um, they were afraid that they would appear less leader-like in the workplace um, by being civil, you know, that uh, it, they wouldn't be seen as, as, as effective, you know, and that surprised us quite a mm. bit. Um, about 25% point to negative role models. So people that um, maybe are kind of flexing their muscles and, you know, really kind of trying to showcase their power. And so it's a way of like, they look up and they emulate those behaviors. Um, and then w- another one that surprised us was about 25% pointed to a lack of training around it. And at the time we were just thinking like, don't you come into the workplace with this? <laughs> you know, like, um, and so we can see both sides, you know, the idea of maybe um, understanding the norms better and things like that. But I think by far the number one reason is stress and feeling overwhelmed. I think, you know, one other thing that's really tied into this though is it goes right along with what you said, which is people don't mean to be this way, you mm-hmm. know. Um, that's actually been one of my greatest learnings is just that most of this stems from a lack of self-awareness. So I think people just have blind spots, you know, we, we don't know how we come off. And for example, like we can't evaluate our own tone while we're speaking. So, you know, things like tone or perhaps nonverbals, or maybe it's interrupting Um, Maybe it's cultural differences, you know, just the way we were supposed to act wasn't quite what the other person would have expected, given that we come from different places. We've been colored by different, you know, um, yeah, yeah, industry norms even. Well, and I think, I don't think uh, digital communication has helped, right? (laughs) Yeah. Makes it so much trickier, I yeah. think. Like yeah. without the nonverbals, uh, well, at least in a lot of cases, and certainly tone. You yeah, know, another. I I fall prey to that, you know, constantly on both sides, right? Reading into something that is said in an email that's not actually, you know, reading into the tone of an email, and we all do that. But then I'm I'm also guilty on the other side, you know, firing off an email too quickly. Yeah. Um, so that's fascinating though, that, that I hadn't ever really thought about, like, you can't evaluate your own tone. Like that is so like, when you said it, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so true. But I've actually never thought about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I read about that in a book and I thought, oh, well, that's part of it, you know? Yeah. And I, I think, you know, the other thing is, um, people are hardwired very differently, meaning literally we, um, sense things uh, like much more sensitively than some people. So some people respond to stressors and threat and embarrassment. It's like up to 3000 times differently. And you know, that to me, I remember that Tom Hanks scene in the movie league of their own where, you know, there's no crying in baseball kind of thing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And just that idea that, you know, some people just like in sports, we know that um, they may be more, you know, sensitive to certain coaches than others. Right. So I think that that's something useful for leaders to pay attention to and and really helps if you get to know employees a little bit better or kind of, you know, an assistant coach or a different manager or leader gets to know someone so that they can, it's not that you have to adapt to their style, but you can understand them better. Do you think that the pandemic has kind of helped in some ways because it has perhaps forced us all to be a little bit more 
um, authentic and, and vulnerable, therefore kind of, you know, f- like forcing us to, you know, step back and, <laughs> and see, you know, see not only our, our lives, but the lives of colleagues and the people that work with us and for us in a different way. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that um, it's provided a lot more emphasis on having empathy. Yeah, um, yeah. We've probably all gone through things or known people close to us that have gone through some real challenges. And so I think it's helping us maybe move the needle to a more empathetic style of leadership. And, you know, one that I know that you and others have been, you know, trying to um, really encourage and foster in different ways. Uh, so I think that that hopefully will be, you know, one wonderful thing to come out of this all. Yeah, I know. I keep calling it a silver lining, but I just, I mean, like it's, it's a struggle, right? Cause I'm not sure that, that, that there really is a silver lining to any of this that we've gone through. <laughs> yeah. It's certainly been a long road. It has. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. One other question that you talk about in mastering civility is that well-being is the antidote to in, incivility. And since mm-hmm. this is the Work Well podcast and we talk about all things well-being, can you help me explore that a little bit? Sure. So, I mean, I think, you know, the mindset is control what you can control. Um, we can't change necessarily, you know, people that may mistreat us or are rude, um, especially if they have greater power than us in organizations, which is often the case we found. So I think it's really important that you make yourself as resilient as possible. (laughs) And a big part of that is um, really taking care of yourself. So it's, you know, all that you focus on with the well-being uh, piece of it, really. And so, you know, oftentimes I'll talk about it as like energy management, but it's really like the physical, um, the mental, the recovery, um, sleep, all of that helps tremendously. And and focusing on filling ourselves up with meaning and purpose outside of the workplace, because by taking care of ourselves, not only physically, but also, you know, feeling better mentally and spiritually, because we're, let's say, enjoying hobbies outside the workplace or people outside the workplace, we actually bring a stronger, more resilient self into the workplace. So it's positively correlated. Like you want to be thriving outside of work because, you know, that tends to lead to greater thriving at work. And so I just think that that's a big piece of it. But, you know, in the community book, we dive into, you know, some of the research around that. Um, The physical part of it, I would say, tied to civility or the antidote to incivility is, you know, our muscles are like a pharmacy that pump hope molecules into our system. So if we're feeling down because people, you know, someone, let's say, put us down or, you know, belittled us, well, a way to pick ourselves up is actually moving, believe it or not. (laughs) So, you know, that's something that we can do. And, you know, sleep is uh, also, you've spoken and written a lot about (laughs) this, but that's also really helpful in making us um, come into interactions more mindful, um, helping us deal with you know, put downs, let's say, um, helping us self-regulate our emotions in the moment and long-term, um, and even helping us show up differently. So, you know, happy to talk more about that, but in researching for this community book, one of the 
streams of research that I stumbled upon was Dr. Matthew Walker's Mm -hmm. work around Mm -hmm. lack of sleep and how it's actually a social repellent. So it's hurting community in the sense of, you know, a sleep deficit actually repels others. We, you know, it's unconscious, but people pick up on that and they're less likely to like us and want to interact with us. And unfortunately, they also catch that and pass it, pass it forward in their network. It's so fascinating. I mean, because I think yeah. it's, you know, people don't necessarily know that it's because you have a sleep deficit. They just think that you're <laughs> not a great person to hang out with. Right. Yeah, <laughs> and I, and I think it- you, you, you know, you don't realize that. I mean, this is certainly resonant in my own life and, and Dr. Matthew Walker's book, you know, changed my life and I talk about it often, but it, you know, when you are sleep deprived or chronically sleep deprived, you don't, you don't know it because you just think that that's the way that it, that it is, you know, like that's just mm-hmm. the way that it is. That's just the way that you feel. That's the way you're supposed to feel. And I tell people all the time, like you just, I, I never even realized like how good it feels to actually get good sleep. It change. I mean, it truly, we could have a whole discussion on it. It truly changes yeah. your life. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, my team, you know, if they end up listening to this episode. They, you know, and I, and I talk about this all too often, so they probably will roll their eyes, but you know, they, they know, um, you know, when, when we spend time together in person, which it's been a long time since we've had the, the opportunity to do that. Um, you know, when it gets to be about eight thirty or nine o'clock, they start sending me to bed and I always tease them. Cause I'm like, well, you guys know what it's like to work with a gen who's not real, you know, well rested, <laughs> you know, and they kind of giggle, but it, there, there's a lot of truth in that statement, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's great for you to recognize and acknowledge, yeah. and I'm sure they appreciate it, you know, yeah, cause you're yeah. setting a tone for them, you know, um, and prioritizing that, which, yeah you know, we find is so important. Like it's not only that the leader encourages it, but when people see the leader role modeling it, you see like a really much greater multiplicative effect as far as others following those, you know, what we would say like sustainable work practices and lifestyles. Yeah. So let's talk about your newer book and talk about community. And, you know, it's, it's, an interesting time to be talking about community, especially in the workplace um, and, you know, building community and building relationships in the workplace. So let's kind of start with what do you, what do you believe has been kind of the cost of this decrease in like real human interaction, not just in our lives, but certainly in the workplace and kind of where are we going with that? Well, I think it definitely colors our mood. Um, it, you know, it's one of our core fundamental needs, arguably the, the strongest based on research. And so when we lose that or lose a really rich part of that, I think, you know, we're working at a deficit, right? We're not, um, our bucket is pretty empty in that department. And so, you know, I think that that means that we show up differently. I think for a lot of us, it's led to, you know, greater depression, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, So our mental health is not nearly what it was, um, which typically means that we're not as engaged in anything, certainly our work, but also our relationships. Everything feels tougher 
Um, and, you know, not nearly then performing as well in the workplace, but I think also it affects our health in really negative ways, but also probably subtle ways that chip away at our well-being and, mm. you know, can result in really problematic health consequences, but it's hard to necessarily notice them in the moment. And so maybe we don't make as many changes as we might be able to control because we think we can and should do better. And and so, you know, that makes it... Um, tough as well, I would say. But yeah, I think that there are tremendous costs and um, probably it's going to take us a long time to dig out of it completely yeah. <laughs> because for most of us, it's not like flipping a switch, right? No. It's, um, you know, developing, I mean, you know, they're, your they're muscles we haven't used in a long time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and leaders reminding people to go, it's okay to prioritize, mm-hmm. you know, this kind of stuff. And um, how are, what are the best practices for keeping up those routines, even when you're not feeling well? Like, you know, I love the exercise example, you know, which is, you know, when you don't feel like exercising, that's, it's really great to just get started. <laughs> Because, you know, you tend to feel better while you're doing it, but we know the research that shows we get a huge boost afterwards and we show up differently. You know, Mm -hmm. there's even research with couples or, you know, that, that work out together or where one of them has worked out and relationships are better as a result of that. So I think if we can keep those things in mind and at least try to prioritize the taking care of me part. Um, and as much as possible, encourage that in our teammates and the people that are, you know, colleagues and so forth, then, uh, you know, hope, hoping for the best that <laughs> we come out of this, you know, as fit as possible and, and motivated. I mean, again, I let's, you know, you talked about silver linings, but I, I do think that potentially yeah. one positive thing is for a lot of people they've done it in their personal lives, but doing it in their work lives too, where they're prioritizing community, you know, they're finding ways to change their lives, you know, whether it's moving cross country, whether it's whatever, changing jobs, um, changing work habits. But I think that that potentially could be a bright spot. Yeah. Well, I'll get on that train. (laughs) (laughs) In your research, you know, what are the benefits of developing flourishing communities. And I think we've talked about some of them, but I, I know you kind of obviously go very deep into this in, in the book. So can you talk more about that? Yeah. I mean, the biggest spikes that we see in outcomes are like ideas with engagement. So engagement shoots uh, way up, you know, if people feel a sense of community, um, people are much more likely to want to stay with their organization if they feel a sense of community. Um, health and well-being increases mm-hmm. as well. So I would say, and and then performance also. Like if you're more engaged and you know more motivated to be a part of that, then uh, of course performance usually follows. So I think that those are you know some of the outcomes that we found associated with people having a sense of community. As a leader, what are you know what are some tips? Like what are some best practices each individual person can do? that will help create a sense of community, not just for themselves, but for others in the workplace? 
Yeah, I think a really practical step, especially right now, is just showing support for people. So it could be checking in, you know, quickly, like not pressuring them that they have to attend another Zoom meeting or something like that. But just like, what can I do to better support you, you know, or how are you doing kind of thing. And I think keeping a pulse on um, how your, let's say, teammate is feeling and what they might need or what they might need to do differently as a result of some of the the challenges that they may be dealing with um, family care or healthcare issues with those around them, mm-hmm. those kind of things is really important. Like feeling that someone has your back um, and that cares about you, uh, I think it goes a long way. Uh, I've heard of leaders that are starting meetings by asking about like, what's one practice or tip that you've started that has helped your well-being, you know, through the pandemic. And so, you know, kind of stealing best practices from each other mm-hmm. around what's been helpful, like what has been working, given that uh, most of us feel like there are plenty of things that aren't working <laughs> real well. So um, that's something. I think that people being vulnerable and creating it through that a psychologically safe space for them to share their challenges, their fears, um, their desires, things like that goes a long way. So really trying to unite people, um, especially because there have been you know plenty of negative things going on in society for a long time now, where I think that a lot of people feel isolated, fragmented, you know, based on certain views and so forth. So if you can unite people, I think that that goes a long way also. Um, but those are, uh, you know, a, a couple of what I hope are practical things. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think in, in the book, you also talk about components of, of cultures, whether it be an organization or a team that help, you know, build community. And it's interesting because, because many of them are the same ones that we talk about when it comes to, you know, building cultures around well-being, but things like, you know, information sharing and autonomy. Um, Obviously, we covered respectful environments, Um, radical candor, which is one of my favorite. And you talked a little bit about psychological safety, but can you kind of dive into some of those and, and, and like, tell us how those affect community building if you have them <laughs> or or negatively impact ability to to build community and belonging if those are kind of missing in a culture. Yeah, sure. Um so with uniting people, I think you're creating a community to unlock people's potential. Like so that's what I was trying to get at with psychological safety is just, you know, um, making people feel comfortable um, sharing sharing information with each other. And you can start that by, you know, stepping up to the plate yourself. <laughs> so I think that that's, um, you know, one way to kind of unlock not only people, but also the potential of a community or an organization. Um, I think unleashing or this idea of autonomy is really the idea of empowering people and making it about uh, allowing them to kind of own something, you know? So it's not about how do I want them to do it, but how do I help them achieve their goals? And, um, you know, I think for a leader that might be playing what's called the backbone role, which is how do you support people 
Um, how do you connect maybe people with others so that they can get the job done? Um, maybe you're providing them data uh, or and or an ear to know how it's going. Um, but but that's the idea of you know making people feel like um, they matter. I would say is a part of that and empowering to do things um, their their way or at least you know in your Deloitte examples. I know that you guys often provide discretion around when the work is done or teammates covering for each other (laughs) certain times. So that, that also plays into that idea of autonomy and discretion and things like that. Um, And makes the community better off for it. Cause again, what tends to happen then is we learn from best practices. So the example in the book is with a hundred thousand homes, which was, uh, when they housed over 100,000 people. And there were all different cities across the country involved in this. But you can imagine that some cities would do things a little differently. And then, you know, they could share that information such that um, we, we'd all be better off because of that. Um, I think respect, we, we touched on, as you mm-hmm. mentioned, but um, there's a real breakdown of community if that's not there. And we talked about some of the costs of incivility and, um, you know, performance, certainly a lot of good people, talent leaving the community if there is disrespect present, even if they're not the target of it. I think uh, civility or respect creates stronger, higher performing communities. Um, And, you know, one important aspect of respect is that the disrespect is like a virus and it spreads really quickly. Um, But the good news that we found in research is civility is contagious too. So our small actions matter and, uh, you know, every one of us community members matters that way. Uh, Radical candor. I I love that too. So I'm (laughs) glad to talk about that one. But, and I think that's really tied to respect. Like to me, respect kind of plants the seeds for that to happen um, I love Kim Scott, the way she yes. describes it, you know, you care personally. And so for me, respect is like a part of that or could be. Um, and then, you know, it allows you to challenge directly and you see the best results. So I think both positive and negative feedback can foster community um, when people feel like, you know, safe and and it's a respected and trusting environment. Um it can lead to real performance gains because, you know, as Kim Scott and others talk about it, by sharing, let's say, negative feedback constructively, uh, we're able to raise each other's game, you know, Um, and, you know, going back to the self-awareness point around disrespect, like if I can share the little thing that's rubbing me the wrong way with you, um, in a respectful way, and in a way that, you know, I care about you and, you know, your progression and all of that. Well, chances are you're, you care, you know, (laughs) you care about people, you have concern for people. So you're probably going to listen. I'm going to feel good because you're listening to me. Um, And then, you know, you're probably going to make some changes and improve in ways that help you and help our team and community that way. Uh, and, and so, like, I think that also just tends to establish an open discourse where, you know, people are more willing to share information. So it's kind of like perpetuates the cycle that you want around that. Uh, 
providing meaning and purpose, I think is just helpful to inciting motivation and reminding people of the the good that they are or can be doing. And so um, that's, you know, really helpful. Uh, It's creating meaning for your community and its members. And we know that that pays from a lot of research. Um, It also, I think, providing meaning helps uh, put a dent in isolation and loneliness. Mm -hmm. Um, And hopefully, again, you know, kind of get people to do more of that. Um, And then the last thing that I I mentioned is kind of a lever is boosting well-being, which... um, (laughs) That's my favorite topic. Yeah, you specialize in. So, um, but I think, you know, part of what I'm trying to highlight is how to create a caring culture. And um, what, you know, I think is a challenge you hit on already, which is like the virtual or hybrid environment makes it tougher. But when you create opportunities for people to connect in deeper, richer ways that foster community, um, the, you know, the members, the organizations, the stakeholders all benefit. And I think the way that I see that, at least in our research, is well-being drives engagement and loyalty, um, which leads to retention and better service, and which often leads to revenue and, you know, better performance for the organization. Yeah, and I, I, I think that's so powerful. And I think what so many organizations are are starting to realize is that, you know, well-being can be positively or negatively impacted by so many things um, mm-hmm. in an organization or in a person's, you know, workday, right? It's not just about, you know, offering, you know, meditation programs or great vacation time or things. I mean, th- all of those things are incredibly important um, as part of the foundation, but recognizing that, you know, the experience that somebody has in their day-to-day workday um, you know, can, can negatively or, or positively impact their well-being. And I think it's um, heartening to see, you know, see well-being be, being kind of talked about in this way and, you know, a light being shown on it in this way. So one of the things I wanted to loop back on, sorry, I just went down a little rat hole there, but no. you know, <laughs> kind of radical candor, um, because I think this is an area that is so important and perhaps so um doesn't get enough attention in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And it also, you know, Kim Scott's great. It also reminds me of so much of Brené Brown's work around, you know, being a daring leader and, you know, clear is kind, right? And Mm -hmm. how do do we develop? I mean, it's really a skill set. I remember the first leader that I worked for that gave me, you know, difficult feedback. It was hard to hear, but she, she delivered it in a way that I walked out feeling empowered and energized to make a change as opposed to feeling completely, you know, deflated and, you know, useless, right? That I was failing at my job. And so, and I think this is a skill set that, that we're potentially not doing a great job of helping um, people develop and helping leaders develop. So how do we go about developing that skill set? Well, I know Kelly Leonard and Kim Scott have really advocated for improv. So like literally practicing it, just like we talked about, um, you know, working out kind of like you have to flex that muscle. Um, What I appreciate about that is that most people really struggle giving negative feedback. Mm -hmm. So like, I'm not doing it until you make me, (laughs) basically. (laughs) So if that's the case, then 
um, I really need to learn to like get myself through that. And so practicing it seems like a good way to go about it. Um, The way that I've found to help, whether it's MBAs or executives, do that kind of thing has been literally in teams providing feedback for one another. So Mm. I try to um, kind of rally them before and, you know, with the Brene Brown type messaging and about being vulnerable, about being courageous, about feedback as a gift and on and on. And, you know, I, I think maybe, you know, I'm hoping that that helps. Um, <laughs> but ultimately, and I also coach them up a little bit using others work on how to receive feedback, because that too is yeah, yeah, a skill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I think oftentimes the part that we don't get learning on. So, you know, those work together, but then I encourage these teams to kind of, whether it's on an index card or something else to share, you know, three things about each individual, like strengths that you're going to highlight for them. Um, And then on the other side of the card, what are three things that they could work on to be more effective or influential? Mm -hmm. And I didn't know how this was going to go. Like I was kind of skeptical and I assumed that they would hate this. And instead, you know, I have teams staying an hour after class, you know, um, hanging out saying it's the best exercise that they've done. And I think the, the catch is it's like 360 feedback. Um, it can vary a lot. So if people don't feel safe and if they don't really put themselves out there and share what the other person could be improving on, it's just not going to work. Um, but I think, you know, to your point, the other aspect of it is teaching people that pointing out that you care is so important. So I think there's a, a study on feedback, which shows that like by prefacing feedback with just 19 words, and there's something along the lines of, I care about you and I think you can do better. And that's why I'm giving you this feedback or, you know, but it's, it's, it, um, kind of decreases the defensiveness around people because they're reminded, oh yeah, you know, one, she cares about me. Two, she, she sees in the high expect and has high expectations and beliefs in me. And she's just trying to help me close the gap so I can get there. And so I, hopefully like making people more mindful of that. And then, you know, perhaps telling them how, how much radical candor matters, you know, like what a difference it makes uh, to people. It will kind of help motivate them to to kind of work through the pain of delivering that negative feedback. But there's so many examples. I mean, I loved, I really appreciated conversations with Krista Quarles, uh, who was CEO of Open Table, who's now CEO of Quarrel. uh, And, Chris O'Neill, who was um, a country leader for Google and then ran Evernote. And, um, you know, just them describing how they saw radical candor as the tool to help transform their culture and in doing so drive innovation and performance. Yeah. I mean, I, I completely believe in that. Um, but I just, it's, it's so underutilized and, and such a powerful tool um, and, and a powerful skill, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think we have to learn to be, it's incredibly, it is uncomfortable. And I don't know 
you know, I mean, does, I guess, does it ever become comfortable? I guess it, it does if it becomes part of your culture, right? But if you're the, the outlier, it's probably always uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, I think it can help. I mean, hearkening back to like conversations with Krista, I mean, one thing that she pointed to, which I loved, which is in the book is she, she said like, you have to give it to get it is what yeah. she realized. Mm-hmm. Like, cause she walked into an environment that she said was squarely in the ruinous empathy, you know, the, I'm not going to tell you what you need to hear kind of thing. Mm. Um, And, you know, so she recognized early on that like, I'm going to have to be vulnerable and model this for people. And, and that helped move the needle a lot, you know, and she highlighted to them, it's okay if we fail, like, you know, Mm. that, that they actually were going to learn faster and perhaps better for some failures. And so, you know, I think she also worked at like reducing the fear of failure, mm-hmm. which may have helped so that people just were hopefully a little bit more okay with negative feedback um, or that uncomfortableness of failing. Um, so those were some things. The other thing that she did that I thought just sounded really helpful was she would pull people aside if she felt the need to like give them some feedback and close the gap. So one of the stories she shared was of a super high potential female, you know, um, that she said, you know, really had the goods and she needed her to speak up in meetings, but that wasn't happening at all. And so she just pulled her aside and said, like, listen, we need your voice. And, um, you know, you're valuable. Um, I'm going to tee you up for this, but I need you to speak up. So, mm. you know, there were times where she did that and, and encouraged her enough and set her up and, you know, behind the scenes was kind of coaching her and also telling her how great she was. Like, that's why they wanted to hear from her. And that helped a lot, apparently, like, you know, but I mean, that doesn't happen overnight, of course, but just like the transformation that you could make like person by person um, also struck me as like, you know, something a leader or teammate could do. And MBAs have shared similar stories around that, you know, getting that feedback. And if we all just picked, you know, one or two people to do that with, right? We could, yeah. we could, we could change the world, yeah. <laughs> not, not just our companies. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I love it. So, so I have one more question for you um, that that I that I failed to ask before, um, but it's okay to fail. We've been talking yes, about that. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, what are some of the most common missteps that you see in community building? Like, are there things that we should be watching out for that are kind of commonplace or perhaps like acceptable norms in the workplace that are actually kind of keeping us from, you know, good community building or things that we should avoid? Well, um, one thing that comes to mind is meetings. Um, (laughs) And maybe that's just front of mind, but the idea that like, you know, we have to march through all of these steps together, lockstep, you know, um, so I guess I'm getting at bureaucracy a little bit, but um, some of the research around meetings was interesting to me. Um, I'm not a person that enjoys meetings, so maybe that was just like helpful to know <laughs> that there are some issues around them. But um, that was one. I think, you know, I would not prescribe having a lot of rules for communities. Like I think you want people to join them because they feel um, a bond with people. 
because of that. So, you know, that strikes me as helpful. I think it's really important getting back to the idea of psychological safety, of creating places where people feel safe. Um, You know, the idea of trust is so important. So making sure that you um, guard that as best as possible, you know? So for example, um, I have a brother that runs like a healthcare community that has online forums. And from the start, they invested a lot of resources around like moderators just to make sure that there were safe places so that people Mm -hmm. didn't feel, you know, picked on basically, or, you know, because that's the last thing that they wanted. uh, And they felt like they needed to really work hard to make sure that people felt okay being, as we talked about earlier, like vulnerable and sharing. So I don't know. Those are some things to come to mind. And then I guess the other thing that we touched on around well-being is um, the importance of leaders being role models in community. And so, you know, I know from your work and um, some of the videos that I've seen and and talked to Dan Helfrich about this, but the idea that you have leaders that are living this stuff matters more than we might think. It it really does. (laughs) Yeah. Do you have ways that, um, I mean, I've seen some of the videos, but that you try to make sure that people feel that more deeply or notice? Um, I mean, I think one of the, one of the things that we do at Deloitte and you and I may have talked about this previously is, you know, this, this kind of, this whole idea of, of, you know, spoken uh, team behaviors and norms. And so mm-hmm. as a, you know, as a team, but importantly, as a leader, you know, facilitating regular conversations about what do we want our behaviors and norms to look like so that everybody's, you know, we talked about clear as kind, right? Everybody's mm-hmm. clear as to what the expectations are of them. Everybody is aware of, you know, what other people's needs are throughout the day, throughout the work week, Um, you know, things as simple as, you know, as a team deciding what our standard working hours are going to be. When can we generally expect to kind of all be online and all be in a, in a position where, you know, we're, you know, available to collaborate within, you know, reasonable parameters because people have work to do also. (laughs) Um, But, you know, outside of that, how do we communicate with each other? Because, you know, if there is something that comes up, um, you know, communicating via email is not a great way to communicate because then everybody feels like they have to be on all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And and so how are we going to communicate in the event of, you know, of an emergency or something that is a true priority? And I think um, I just wrote something recently about, you know, we need to stop saying that everything's a priority. And if you follow Greg McKeon at all, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, he, he says there really truly, there can't be 10 priorities, right? The word yeah. priority itself means that there's just one, <laughs> you know, and so stop marking things as urgent when they're not really urgent. Stop calling things a priority when they're not really, truly a priority. And so setting that groundwork as a team um, and as the leader making sure that you're the one that is, you know, dim, like leading that behavior, right? You can't right. say, you know, saying that you'll do it and doing something. I mean, I've experienced that in my own life as a leader is, you know, telling my team they don't need to check email when they're on vacation, but then I check email when I'm on vacation, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> and I have all the stories around why I should check email on vacation, but, you know, what I'm doing and what I'm saying doesn't add up. And that is hugely detrimental. And fortunately 
for me, I have a team that isn't isn't afraid to tell me um, when I'm taking a misstep, um, which is great because <laughs> it keeps me in line too. <laughs> That is great. Well, that yeah. shows that yeah. like the radical candor is there. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. yeah. Face, all of that. Look, just because I have a title that has well-being in it doesn't mean I have it all perfect. I definitely don't. <laughs> That's how I talk about civility and yeah. community. You know, yeah. I'm learning about it. I'm right. not the, you know, master of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, Christine, thank you so much. There was there was so much. I feel like we could keep going. Um, but there was so much in here um, that all of us can learn and go do. And I just appreciate you know, a lot of the tactics and, and how actionable um, so many of your, your responses were. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'm so grateful Christine could be with us today to talk about community and civility at work. Thank you to our producers, Rivet360, and our listeners. You can find the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com, or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword WorkWell, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a topic you'd like to hear on the WorkWell podcast series, or maybe a story you would like to share, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jen Fisher, or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to your recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. Thank you and be well. The information, opinions, and recommendations expressed by guests on this Deloitte podcast series are for general information and should not be considered as specific advice or services.